everybody? We are back. Another like a special edition R2C2 mm. right here, man. We banging them out, guys. We we really are, man. Like we we're gonna release our new episodes every Thursday morning. Yeah. But, but we also, you know, with the Ringer now and Spotify, we're gonna do some some weeks where we have multiple episodes. Yeah, you know, a little bonus, a little bonus R2C2. People get to hear us twice in a week, you know? Yeah. It's all good. <laughs> Why not, man? Why not? I, I think this is probably the best occasion we could possibly have for our first bonus episode. Yeah, for sure, man. I'm super, super excited about this. Obviously, you know, I'm super close to Bob. Um, and, and, you know, me and Curtis are teammates who played, competed against each other, been teammates, done stuff in the community together. So, um, you know, I'm excited to bring this Players Alliance and and uh, Negro League Museum 100th year anniversary uh, podcast to everybody. It's going to be fun. Yeah, you guys will get a kick out of this. Uh, Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro League Museum. Curtis Granderson, obviously so many of you familiar with his big league career. And and for those of you who've n- never heard Bob before, wow, you're in for one of the greatest storytellers you've ever heard in your life. Um, and for those of you who have, wow, you are once again reminded of one of the greatest storytellers you've ever heard in your life. I mean, it, Cece, it, it is amazing the way that Bob makes the museum and the Negro Leagues come to life and really makes you understand the stories of these incredible young men. No, he really does. And and even, you know, you'll hear it on the pod, even without being to the, going to the visiting museum, he still brings it to light. So, like, I'm just excited for people that, you know, have listened to the, that are going to listen to this pod that have been to the museum. And even the people that don't know anything about the Negro League Museum, you know, you're going to get a real treat uh, today with Bob. Absolutely. So uh, this Sunday, Major League Baseball is celebrating the 100th year anniversary of the Negro Leagues. They're doing so with all the players, managers, coaches, umpires wearing a patch um, on their jerseys. And so what a perfect time uh, for us to also celebrate the Negro Leagues. We do so with the president of the Negro Leagues, Bob Kendrick, as well as Curtis Granderson right now with CC Sabathia and Ryan Rucco on R2C2. I mean, I just have to say, it, it's such an awesome honor for us to have these guys on, see, because, you know, I, I got to do a lot of stuff with Curtis when he was with the Yankees. Everybody always loves everything Curtis is involved in. And you and I have had Bob on R2C2 before, and I swear... I think I have more people come up to me about the episode we had with Bob over any other episode we've done, man. I because re- his stories, like people still come up. See, so I mean, I, th- this is this is much needed getting you guys on here together. So thank you guys for being with us. Oh man, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me back. Good to be back. Good to have you back. And Curtis, good to have you on your first R2C2 appearance, man. I know. I've been watching as a fan. You guys have been doing amazing stuff. And to be on with Bob, Bob is the man. So, I mean, he, <laughs> he, he, he is the best. So anytime I get a chance to just sit and talk, like you said, all your listeners have heard his great stories. I'm excited to hear a few more. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, I'm excited. I'm just glad that everybody was able to make it. I know Curtis spent a lot of time going to the museum. Obviously, you know, our connect, my connection, our connection with Bob. Um, so, you know, the, this Players Alliance, um, you know, podcast, um, you know, to celebrate the 100th year, um, you know, I just thought it'd be perfect to have these two on. So I'm excited to, you know, for listeners to get a chance to, you know, hear wh- how we feel about the museum and, and 
what it means to us, you know, me and Kurt as former players, for sure. No question. You know, I I, I guess I'd love to start there, C, and, and you know, I, I'll start with you. We can start with you and then I, Curtis's thoughts as well. But just like, C, why, what does the museum mean to you? And, and, and you know, when did you first connect with it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think for me, it's just right away. You know, I got a chance to meet, like I said, meet Buck O'Neill when I was a rookie. And the very next day, I came to the museum, and it, I just connected right away. And, and it's something that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a direct line to why I'm, I'm able to play baseball. And mm. to be able to see that history, um, you know, it just means so much to me. And, and I fell in love with it right away and just wanted to bring as many teammates as possible um, every time we went through there and just made sure, um, you know, that was, that was a part of the trip. And, and Curtis, how about for you, man? Very similar story. In 2006, when I made the Detroit Tigers out of opening day, we opened up in Kansas City, and Buck O'Neill came out through the first pitch, and I got a chance to go to the museum with Craig Monroe, Marcus Timms, Rod Allen, and Rod actually sent me a picture recently of the late, great Buck O'Neill. And ever since then, when I got a chance to meet Bob at the museum and the way he laid down just the tour and made you feel like you were in the museum and in with these players and on the field, I said, I got to come back every time I'm back in Kansas City and I'm bringing as many teammates, friends, and family as I can. And I've been trying to do that ever since. Well, you know, uh, Bob, for me, CeCe had always talked about the museum. And um, yeah. and I finally got that chance to go a couple years ago and to go with you guiding it. And it, it, the way you make the museum and the league come to life is just second to none. And and you immediately, you'd have to not be human to feel this instant connection <laughs> and feel like you're watching the history unfold before you, right? And, and so, Bob, I, I, I'm just wondering, when you see the way that the Negro Leagues are being celebrated this year in the 100-year anniversary, you know, what has this meant to you uh, to see the attention around, you know, uh, something that means so much to you and you know so much about? It, it fills me naturally, Ryan, with tremendous pride because I think this is something that we wanted to see happen to have Major League Baseball, Major League Baseball's Players Association join us in celebrating what we believe is one of the most important milestones, not in just baseball history, but in American history. It, it's something that makes us all tremendously proud. And I know tomorrow is going to be very emotional for me. I'm going to be really busy throughout the course of the day and it'll probably all hit me on Monday because I'll be running my mouth pretty much all day tomorrow. <laughs> Drink but, that tea, know, Bob. I, Drink that tea, man. Exactly. I, but I can't help but reflect on Buck. You know, it's not a single day as you guys can well imagine that I go, that goes on that I don't think about Buck. But CC and Curtis, when I first got involved with the museum in 1993 as a volunteer, and I met Buck O'Neill for the first time. And, and of course, Buck had the same effect that he has just about on everybody. You know, you meet him for the first time, it's like you've been friends for life. <laughs> and, and I asked him, I asked him then, I said, well, Buck, what motivated you to want to build this museum? And, and man, what he said to me was so captivating. And so vintage Buck, he said, so that we would be remembered. 
And, and, and you know, guys, in the final equation, that's what we all want is to be remembered. And so what makes Sunday so special is that they are being remembered. They're being celebrated for what they were able to accomplish in the face of tremendous social adversity. And so this is not only a win for baseball, this is a win for our country uh, to celebrate, as I like to say, America's unsung baseball heroes. Yeah, Sunday, all major league players, managers, coaches, umpires wearing a patch to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Negro Leagues. Uh, I think that um, Buck O'Neill is a great place to start with, uh, you know, hearing some of the stories and the reactions, especially since, see, I know, you know, you have your own personal stories when it comes to Buck O'Neill and, and some things that stood out throughout the years and interactions. Yeah, for sure. I mean, just that, that very first one, I think that's everybody's, you know, story <laughs> to go back to. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, I walk out of the field and, you know, I'm a rookie. I'm 20 years old. I don't expect anybody to know me. And, you know, he called me over. Hey, big fella, come over here. And, and, you know, started talking to me, told me he'd been watching me and, you know, was rooting for me. And like, like you know, Bob said, felt like I had been knowing him my whole life, you know. So it's just that instant connection that he's able, that he was able to to connect with anybody, really. And, and you know, really, you know, bring the Negro Leagues to life and and really get you interested in, um, it, my, you know, my love just kind of started right then that, that very first, you know, interaction that I had with him. And, and, you know, ever since then, I mean, you know, it, it was, it's just been, it's, it's been a great experience. Yeah. Similar for you, Curtis. Absolutely. The big thing that stood out to me was how clean he was in his suit, you know, <laughs> <laughs> man, you know, you, you see, oh, man. it's an opening day and, and it's cold out. And he was like, nah, I'm going to have his suit on. I'm going to show y'all how I do. And he came out there from a smile from ear to ear. And, oh, I mean, I still remember it was amazing. Uh, and, and, you know, for me, Ryan, and that's the story, that's that common thread with Buck O'Neill, two, two stories kind of, you know, stand out for me. We're in San Diego and, and Dave Winfield for about a decade put on one of the, the best salute to the Negro Leagues done in baseball. And so on this particular time, the Padres are playing Philadelphia. And so Jimmy Rollins, who has always been a longtime friend also of the museum, he brings a young Ryan Howard over to meet Buck. And, and, and you no, know, this is before Ryan is really Ryan. He's not empty <laughs> Ryan. He's not home run need a Ryan Howard. And so he brings Ryan over and he introduces Ryan to Buck as the left-handed Josh Gibson. <laughs> and, 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 and you could tell Ryan was a little taken aback, was a little embarrassed by that comparison. And, and Buck looks at him and he says, oh, so you got some power, huh? <laughs> and Ryan very sheepishly said, yes, sir. He looks at Ryan. He says, son, don't be shame of your power. Swing that back. You know, and, <laughs> <Ryan's> just, <Right. laughs> and you can see Ryan just kind of all of a sudden, you know, it's that same thing. And then Derek Jeter, same story, CC. He says his first trip into Kansas City. He's a rookie with the Yankees. And, and as you all know, Buck always hung out at the Cape. He yeah. always hung out at the Cape. And he wasn't there just talking up the Royals. He's there talking baseball and talking up all the players. And so the same experience, CC, that you had as a rookie was Jeter's same experience. He says, here he is. 
nobody knows who I am. And the first person to greet him was Buck O'Neill. And, and Buck embraced him and was telling him how great he could be and how we counting on him. And, and now is Derek Jeter Hall of Famer. You know, and, and the same story for Ichiro Suzuki. You know, the same thing. Two guys from two different cultures who bonded through baseball, but Buck understood what Ichiro's situation was. And, and, and Curtis Ichiro said the same thing. He admired Buck's style. You know, Buck was always <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But, you know, for Buck, Ichiro represented the Negro League. Because, you know what I mean, guys? He was this kid who in Japan had put up 3,000-plus hits. But when he signs to come to the major leagues, everybody's skeptical. Well, you know, you did that in Japan. You won't be able to do this in our league. Hmm. What does he do? He puts up 3,000 more hits. Yeah. And, but, you know, but, see what, but that was the same thing for the Negro League players. No matter how good they had been in the Negro Leagues, there was always this air of skepticism that you can't do this in our league. And then they get down to the major leagues and they rip it up too. And, <laughs> and so Buck understood that and, and it created this, this unique bond between this kid from Japan and this elderly black man, you know, from the United States. And, and they had a kindred friendship all the way until the time that Buck died in 2006. You know what's crazy is I don't understand the like how people didn't think that we can play in the MLB when when they had the All-Star games, we won them all the time. You know what I mean? We had the winning record. So how could you not think that we can play in that league? You know what I mean? Like, I, I honestly don't get it. It didn't make any sense. That's why you don't get it, because it didn't make any sense. You know, there was, there was always this air of skepticism, because I think, guys, the most difficult thing, even today, for baseball fans to understand is that there were two professional baseball leagues operating simultaneously to one another mm. one we know everything about the major leagues or you've got a place to turn to learn about it they gave the best opportunity for the best white athlete to showcase his skill the negro leagues did the exact same thing for the best african-american and hispanic athletes to showcase their world-class baseball ability but they were both professional i was having this conversation the other day and i said you know for those who are skeptical about the talent that was in the Negro League, I challenge you to think right now, who are the two greatest living major leaguers? And, and I don't think you'll get very much dispute about this. Willie Mays and Henry okay. Aaron. Okay. And both of them come out of the Negro League. And, and, and they are just a sampling of the incredible talent that was there in the Negro League. I'm telling you guys, when I hear someone the magnitude of the late, great Monty Irvin, say that I played with Willie Mays. And he did. He mentored Willie when Willie joined the New York Giants. Monty, Monty Irvin was a superstar himself. And I played against Henry Aaron, and neither of them are Josh Gibson. Mm. It just, yeah, you know what I'm saying? It just makes you wonder, damn, how good was Josh <laughs> Right, right. Bob, you know, even on top of that, when Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier, yeah, he he broke through, he played, he did stuff. But think about this. He won the Rookie of the Year award. And they'll go, okay, he was a Rookie of the Year. But look who all the voters were. Look who all the people that had to decide 
that this was the best rookie of the year. It wasn't one of any of the other white players. It was this guy that everyone was skeptical about, like CC said. Can he do what he can? He came in the league, did everything, and not only did everything, got the votes from the white voters to win the rookie of the year. Like, how, how does that added to all this thing, you know? Then gets MVP and then goes on from there. I think I saw a stat someone pulled up once he broke in that year for the next, I think, 33 or 40 years or something like that. There only went two times in history where you didn't go back to back years without a black player winning the MVP in either yeah. one of the two leagues. I mean, it was amazing. It's incredible. And, and, and I tell people, one of my favorite factoids relative to the Negro Leagues and their immediate impact on Major League Baseball from 1949 until 1959, nine of 11 National League MVPs were former Negro League stars. Wow. Now, you got to remember that the American League was very slow. Yeah. You know, they really didn't want to blame bright players into the fold. They were very slow. The National League was far more aggressive. And what happens? The National League started winning the All-Star Game and they started winning World Series. But nine of 11 were were most valuable players. We're not even talking the rookies of the year, as Curtis mentioned, most valuable players. So you could feel that impact as soon as the doors actually open. And I, and I tell people all the time, they didn't learn how to play baseball after 1947. Well, I think to, to that point, see, you know, just our, I don't know if our audience knows the games you alluded to before about the games between the Negro Leagues and then Major League All-Stars. And Bob, I would love if you would just give, you know, a little background on that, because uh, I, I don't know if people realized about that intercompetition and what went on for years, you know, before we saw Jackie Robinson break the color barrier and, and, oh, yeah, in Major no, League Baseball. You know, you know, CC alluded to it. There were countless exhibition games between Negro League and Major League teams or All-Star teams, uh, both black and white. And the record books bear out that the Negro League teams or the black All-Star teams won almost 75% of the head-to-head matchups. So really, there was no doubt about their ability to play in the major leagues. It was just simply the social conditions of our time and fear that kept them out. Mm. And and these games, guys, we're talking about those all-star games. We're talking about the creme de la creme, the (laughs) best of the best. You know, Satchel got his all-stars against Bobby Feller's all-stars or Dizzy Dean's all-stars. And they're going from East Coast to West Coast. They are outdrawing the World Series. You know, you weren't accustomed to seeing that much star power on the field in, in, you know, in any occasion outside of these games. So Satchel went and got the best that he could find. Fella went and got the best that he could find. And then it was on, you know, and, and they were going, like I said, <laughs> East Coast to West Coast, you know, or Buck played for Satchel's All-Stars in 1946. And Bobby Fella actually leased a plane for Satchel. And the Red Sox, and Feller had his own plane. And the Red Sox reported, Buck says, for 17 days of work in 1946, each of them on his team could earn $7,000 a piece wow. in 1946. Yeah, he says he was making so much money, his wife thought he was stealing. 
<laughs> that that's my favorite picture. My yeah. favorite picture yeah. in the Negro League Museum is them standing on the tarmac clean <laughs> and the plane says Satchel All-Stars on it. Like, <laughs> it that's so, the flyest picture in there, I'm telling you. You know, uh, uh, reportedly, the Boston Red Sox paid Ted Williams $5,000 not to go on the trip because they thought that old plane was going to crash and they didn't want to lose that star. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. Oh so I, I got a chance to meet Bob Feller, too, because you're being young with the Indians. Um, he yeah. was there a lot. And he he loved Satchel. He had a lot of respect for Satchel. He always talked about Satchel in the Negro Leagues and playing in those games and getting together. And before I met Buck and went to the museum and saw that picture of the planes, I didn't really get what he was saying. He was like... Yeah, I had a plane, Satchel had a plane, and we would fly around and play games. I'm like, wait, what? Like, you guys had your own team that y'all would play in the offseason? Like, it was, it was, it was wild, but like that was that was what they did. I mean, it, it was insane. Well, the, the Negro League teams were winning the game so frequently that Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis, who was the commissioner of Major League Baseball at that time, banned intact Major League teams from playing intact Negro League teams. Because he felt it was an embarrassment that they were losing to those black teams. And, and then he started sanctioning these games that they had to be after the World Series because he was embarrassed that they were outdrawing the World Series. But the players didn't want to stop. The white players did not want to stop doing this because they were making a lot of money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> money talks. <laughs> it does. <laughs> you, you, you know, uh, I, you, there's so many different players in Bob, and I think about some of the stories I've heard from you throughout the years and some of the players' names who've come up thus far. But but since he just came up, let's dive into Satchel. You know, Bob, how about if, if – I mean, what are some of your favorite Satchel Page stories and, and, you know, just what stands out most to you about Satchel? Oh, man, we, we don't have enough time. <laughs> <laughs> Satchel, Satchel was the man. You know, he, he really was. And because he had everything. He, he had the longevity that people talk about. We don't know how old he really was. He played that up. It was part of his calling card. He had the great stuff, CC. I mean, just electric stuff. And, and he also had the charisma. So he could sell it. And, and so whether it was in big cities or small towns, everybody shut down to watch this old man pitch. And, and so, you know, one of my favorite Satchel stories, this is after he has left the major leagues. He, he had left the Indians. He had done a stint with the St. Louis Browns. And then Bill Vec brings him to join the, the Miami Marlins. And the Miami Marlins, Satchel must be, if you believe he was born in, 1906. He's 51, 52 years old. I absolutely do not believe that he was born in 1906. But for the sake of this story, we'll say that he's 51, 52 <laughs> years old at this time. And, and so the Marlins are playing the, the Rochester Triple A team. They're in Rochester, New York. And a young Whitey Herzog was on the Marlins team. And so, fellas, the Rochester team had a promotion. They had a knot hole in the outfield wall. And the promotion said that if any batter could hit a ball on the fly through that knot hole, 
you could win $100,000. Well, it was virtually impossible. And so Herzog says he's out in the outfield jogging when he decides to take a baseball to see if the ball would actually fit in the hole. Well, there's just enough circumference to squeeze that baseball through the hole. He goes and gets Satchel. He says, Satchel, you always bragging about how great your control is and how you can throw a baseball over a chewing gum wrapper. Honest to God's truth, the catcher would sit that chewing gum wrapper right on top of home plate wherever he moved the chewing gum wrapper, Satchel right over the top of it. Well, you always bragging about your control and how you can throw it over a chewing gum wrapper. I bet you a bottle of granddad bourbon that you can't throw a baseball through this knot hole. Now, Satchel had a nickname for everybody. His nickname for Herzog was Wild Child. He said, Wild Child, will the ball fit? Well, Herzog shows him it's just enough circumference to squeeze that ball through the hole. Satchel says, Wild Child, I'll take that bet. And so Herzog says the next day he gets out to the ballpark, he goes out to the outfield, he steps off 60 feet, six inches, he puts down the pitching rubber, CC, he's going to give the old man three tries to throw that ball through the knot hole. Well, he says Satchel takes the baseball like a hunter is looking through the telescope of his rifle. <laughs> and he measures. <laughs> and, he, and he says the first pitch goes in the hole, but spins back out. He says he's in freaking disbelief. He says the very next right through the hole. Satchel reaches down, picks up the bottle of bourbon, and says, wild child, I'll take that, and saunders on off into the sunset. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you know, you think of Satchel with all that pinpoint accuracy and doing what he did, just to give even more context to those all-star games. Cece, you mentioned Bob Feller. I got a chance to meet him as well. And Verlander, who I'm sure a lot of the listeners right now would call one of the best pitchers in this game right now, one of his biggest moments for me that stood out is he finished a game in Oakland. His last pitch of the game, which is 100th pitch, was 100 miles an hour. Bob Feller said, I was doing that all the time when I was pitching. <laughs> so Bob was throwing 100, and they was still losing to Satchel in his All-Star. <laughs> so, so think about how good this All-Star team was when Bob was throwing 100 back then and still getting lit up. And then you got Satchel doing what he's doing, like you said, Bob, just going out there and with the accuracy and the dominance and just going out there and just destroying him at a 75% clip. Well, you know, and, and, and the Negro League had these little gnats, man. They, they would get a guy like, they would get a guy like Fella because these guys were going to shorten up their swing and put it in play. And the athleticism with all that great speed they had, they were bunting the ball on these guys and doing all this stuff that the major leaguers really had not seen. And, and so they would always find a way to get to him. But, you know, they were talking about Satchel. They're in Yankee Stadium. They're in Yankee Stadium, and Satchel's on the mound. And the military is there with an old crew speed tracking device. This is well before the radar gun. And so they clocked Satchel's fastball at 105 miles per hour. Satchel retires to side. The kid is astounded. He comes up to Satchel. He says, Mr. Page, Mr. Page, we clock your fastball at 105 miles per hour. 
Satchel looks at him. He says, son, I wish I'd known you were timing me. I could have thrown harder than that. (laughs) (laughs) Man. I love it, man. I love it. The personality and, and... and the names of the pitches too, right? Like Satchel had. Oh, he had names for his pitches. He had names for them, man. So you know, he didn't have fastball, changeup, curveball. Not Satchel. Satchel had what he called his midnight creeper. He had the two humper, the bat dodger, the hesitation pitch. He had the long tom, the short tom, the jump ball, the trouble ball, the radio ball, the wobbly ball, the dipsy do, and of course, my favorite pitch was the b-ball and of course he called it the b-ball because as satchel would say it bees where i want it to be when i want it to be there (laughs) (laughs) man that's insane that's awesome that's awesome have you heard uh bob have you heard of uh of john donaldson oh absolutely lefty pitcher left-handed pitcher who cc historians have gone back and accounted for over 400 verifiable wins. Wow. Yeah. And and Donaldson was kind of this J.L. Wilkinson who owned the Monarchs. He was kind of his hired gun. You know, Wilkie would kind of rent him out and, and was making money, and he had the utmost respect for John Donaldson because out of all these great Hall of Fame pitchers that J.L. Wilkinson had during his tenure, with the Monarchs, we're talking Satchel Page, Bullet Rogan, Jose Mendez, Hilton Smith. These guys are all in the Hall of Fame. And, and Wilkinson would have, if he was alive today, he'd say John Donaldson was better than all of them. Wow. Now, it's just hard for me to believe that anybody was better than Satchel. Right. Now, that might have been something <laughs> that was as good as Satchel, but it's hard for me to think that anybody was better than Satchel. But John Donaldson should absolutely be in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. He's from a small rural town here in Missouri called Glasgow, Missouri. And later next month, the citizens of Glasgow, predominantly white community, they are erecting a statue of John Donaldson. Wow. And to me, that is amazing in this day and age when we've been taking down these monuments that are symbols of hate. Yeah. Here's this white community that's erecting a statue of a black man uh, who was their native son, whose legacy had been lost for so long. And and I do hope that he eventually makes his way into the Hall of Fame because he absolutely should be there. Yeah, that's, I mean, 400 wins, 5,000 strikeouts. Like, this guy was a beast. (laughs) And he gets lost in history, you know? Like, he's the only one of of the, the big pitchers from the Negro Leagues that's not in the Hall of Fame. So he definitely deserves exactly. to be in there. And he, and he came up with the cutter. He, he made the cutter up. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, he, 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 was, he was nasty, man. You know, left-hander, great control, threw hard. Uh, I mean, you hear some of these pitching feet, you know, striking out 27-30 in a game. You know, I mean, and, and, and multiple no-hit games and the whole nine yards. And this stuff has all been backed up. So this is not lore and legend. This is now documented, you know? Mm. And so, yeah. And so you're not talking about, well, this is what somebody told me. No, they go back and found the research to actually document his feet. So then when you get the documentation, people say, well, he really wasn't playing against anybody. Man, if you got 400 wins and 5,000 strikeouts, 
I don't care who you playing against. For <laughs> 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 uh, Curtis, uh, is there a player for you that either, you know, learning about the Negro Leagues or hearing Bob stories or, you know, through sort of your own engagement with the museum that really strikes a chord with you or that stories you always enjoy hearing or looking up or reading about? It's, it's a mix. I mean, there's so many different stories and guys, but probably the cool Papa Bell story and, and being bet if he can get in the room before the room got dark and just <laughs> realizing how fast he was. And, you, you, you know, you, you mentioned, Bob, about stories about guys not wanting to play or leagues not wanting to play. But even Jesse Owens didn't want to race this man. And Jesse We're Owens racing. was the fastest man in the world <laughs> and wouldn't run against cool Papa Bell. Like, again, just think about all these different things. This isn't just a fast man. This is an Olympic champion that yeah. wouldn't run against cool Papa Bell. Mm. World-class. World-class <laughs> speed. And, uh, and that's a true story. You know, cool uh, challenged Jesse Owens to a race. And Jesse Owens said, well, I don't have my, my cleats. And, and Cool Papa said, I don't have my cleats either. Let's get it on. <laughs> <laughs> we can run barefoot, huh? <laughs> oh, man. Well, the thing about Cool was he had this blazing speed. But Cool may have been the greatest base runner this game has ever seen. You know, because Buck says that Cool had the uncanny ability to cut that bag on the inside where most guys would have to take that big round turn. He says cool would be so low to the ground, left-handed hitter. So he's coming out the box running that he would be so low to the ground guys that he could literally smack the bag with his hand and not fall over. Yeah. Some things are just God. <laughs> yeah. You know, there yeah. is no explanation you just accept that God gave him something that he didn't get the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask Kurt about getting back to Jackie and, and, and Blake, uh, breaking the color barrier. I mean, it seemed, I don't want to say it seemed easy. It seemed easier to play in the Negro Leagues, right? Because, you know, one of, the fa my, one of my favorite years I had in the big leagues, probably the most fun I ever had, was that year in Milwaukee. And it was because we had seven black dudes on the team. You know what I'm saying? Mm, so, like, mm. you're in the Negro Leagues and it's a thriving league and everything is fine and you're traveling around. But then to try to break the color barrier and be that guy to, like, break in and have to deal with not being able to stay with your teammates and not having that camaraderie while trying to travel out around and play baseball during the summer, like, how hard do you think that would have been? You know what I'm saying, Kurt? Like, trying to play in the big leagues and bring your people with you? Like, that's tough. People ask that question, like, who would you, what time frame would you want to go back to and who would you want to meet? And that's Jackie's one of my guys. Like, Jackie's somebody I just want to ask, how hard was it? You know, hitting the baseball and all that stuff, we can figure out how to do that. Like you said, Bob, they didn't learn how to play baseball. They knew how to do all that stuff. But to come in there and there's guys on your own team that don't want you there. Forget the they other team. There. There's yeah, guys exactly. on your own team that don't want you there. The stands, the fans, where you eat, where you stay. I mean, Jackie and his wife, when they went in the minor leagues, you told me about how many bed bugs they had on their hotel bed just trying to get down to spring training. And, you know, we're complaining, oh, they're not flying me first class and all this stuff. <laughs> you know, just, again, just thinking about all those different things. Oh, yeah, get on the field where they're trying to throw at you on purpose, trying to slide with their cleats up on purpose. You may not get the call. They may not, 
you know, do all these different things to allow you just to be somewhat even. And again, he won the rookie of the year of the with year. all that stuff going on. And, 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 and you know what makes it even more amazing, Curtis? And, and this surprises so many people. Baseball was Jackie's weakest sport. He, he was a much better basketball, football, track athlete, some say an even better tennis player. Mm. And he turns himself into a Hall of Fame caliber baseball player. And so that's why, you know, we don't take Ombridge when people say he wasn't the best player in the Negro Leagues because he wasn't. But that's not to disparage Jackie because he's one of the greatest athletes in American sports history. So now you got a guy who is weak in sport is baseball. And he comes into that league with that kind of weight because honestly, guys, he was carrying 21 million black folks on mm. his back yeah. because guys had he failed an entire race of people would have failed. That's an enormous amount of pressure for any one man to have to bear. And he cannot fail in a game as you all well know is predicated on failure. Fail, yeah. That's the beauty of our sport. Hey, right. Now you're going to fail more times than you succeed in this sport. You know, and he can't fail. And, and that's what, like, is just so fascinating to me. Like, he he had to, he couldn't have been thinking about the Negro League players. He had to be thinking about us, Kurt. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, he had to be thinking, like, past his generation to not react to somebody calling him the N-word. Or, you know what I'm saying? Like, he had to be thinking, like, for the future. Like, for us to be able to sit here and do this and play and, like, have the careers that we had. Our families benefit from it, like. I get the chills just thinking about it because, <laughs> that, I mean, that's that's incredible for him to put that on his soldiers and, you know, for me to be able to live out my dreams basically on his back, man. It's crazy. Man, you said it. I got the chills wearing my Negro Leagues leather jacket in the summertime. <laughs> I still got the chills, you know. But, but a big, you know, a thank you for the 100-year jacket. You know, everybody go to the Negro League Museum and get your jacket. But like you said, CeCe, I mean, not only did Jackie do what he did on the field, but then was an activist in the civil rights movement. You know, he was fighting for so many things to get you and I to be able to sit here and talk, to have had a career, to be able to be in the, the position to fight for the things that we're still trying to fight for. But he laid that groundwork on the field, off the field, truly before people started defining that, saying, oh, you're such a great individual, both on and off the field. Well, Jackie had been doing that in a time where they didn't want you on the field. They didn't want you off the field. And he still was able to find ways to continue to do things, to set up stuff for you and I. It's amazing. It is absolutely amazing because, you know, he showed, I, I, I did one of these kinds of interviews with, with Sharon, Sharon Robinson, his daughter. And I asked, I mean, I don't know if it was remotely possible that he could fully grasp what he had just signed up for. I don't know if there's any way that you can really understand just how much weight this was going to be and how tumultuous this experience was going to be when he signed up to say, I'll do it. And, and yet somehow or another, this man was strong enough and talented enough to carry the weight of a race on his shoulders. And, and that's why I tell people, we should never forget Jackie Robinson. We, should, we really shouldn't. 
but we shouldn't forget the lead that gave us Jackie Robinson. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And as we wear this Robinson shirt, CC, thank you, man. Beautifully oh, yeah. designed. Uh, you know, and, and as we wear this shirt that says, talks about him as a member of the Kansas City Monarchs, that's where it all began. And while baseball has certainly done a great job of helping people understand what happened the day he walked out on the field with the Brooklyn Dodgers, April 15, 1947. Baseball has not done a great job of helping people understand where he came from. Yeah, he's handpicked from the Kansas City Monarchs. And as I tell people all the time, before he was number 42, he was number five for the Kansas City Monarchs. And his year in Kansas City, guys, he fell in love with everything that Kansas City is known for. Barbecue and jazz. <laughs> and so, so Cece, he liked the ribs at a place called Old Kentucky Barbecue. Old Kentucky Barbecue is the forerunner of what is now the gate barbecue chain. Oh, uh, wow. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so, okay, that, that, there goes a direct connection right there because I get a case of gates after every game. <laughs> that's, that's it. That's it. <laughs> that is amazing. I mean, CC Fine, he introduced me to the food in Kansas City uh, a couple summers ago, man. Wow. Oh, it is man. Uh, just incredible. Oh, amazing scene. Yeah, no, it, it, it's tough on vegans here, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know what, Bob? Yeah, go ahead, Curtis. I was going to say, they got barbecue baked beans. You can get that. They got some meat in it. Bob, I always remember back to, you know, when you took me around the museum and, and talking about Jackie and saying, you know, that there is this assumption from people that, oh, you know, Jackie was the best player in the Negro Leagues, and that's why he was the one who was able to make it. But the reality is, and, and you know, obviously adjust my wording to whatever the truth is from your perspective. But as I understood it from you saying, no, 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 the reality is, yeah, he's a great, great player, but he was the guy who had the perfect disposition mentality. He had, he had the sort of the, you know, the, the mental toughness needed to weather what was an unprecedented storm. He was walking into trying to make it break this barrier and dealing with all the things that, you know, you guys were just talking about. You know, Ryan, and it's really interesting because sometimes young people will come into the museum and they'll hear me tell the story of what Jackie endured his first year in the major leagues. Mm. And they will falsely surmise that he must have been soft, that he was some kind of Uncle Tom, not Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson was as fiery and feisty an individual as you will ever meet. Mm. As the late great Buck O'Neill would say, Jackie could Duke, and he would Duke. He would <laughs> knock you on your rump. <laughs> but he humbled himself for the greater good. And, and that's what you're alluding to. And I have to remind the young people that sometimes it's more difficult not to fight back than it is to fight. Mm. And, 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 and this took a lot out of Jackie because it was totally uncharacteristic of Jackie. Uh-huh. And, and you're right. Jackie had what I like to refer to as the intangibles that better prepared him to deal with that racial hatred. He had been a celebrated collegiate, an all-American football player at UCLA. So he is college educated. 
He had served in the military. He was disciplined. He would become married to the very beautiful Rachel Robinson. He was stable. All of those attributes would be called upon to deal with that racial hatred. As I remind people all the time, when he took the field April 15th, 1947, man, he was called everything, but as my mother would say, but a child of God when he walked out on the field. (laughs) And, And Ryan, you alluded to it earlier. When he came to the plate, they knocked him down. As a matter of fact, the opposing team's pitchers would oftentimes get fined if they did knock him down. And CC, can you imagine that, you know, where you're being mandated, you feel like I can get this guy out, I don't need to knock him down. And, and you've got that, you know, there had to be some pitchers who didn't have that in their heart, but they had to do it to protect their own livelihood. And, and Curtis talked about it. He would slide in the second base, he would come up wet where the opposition had spit on him. When the opposition slid in the second, they came in, Spike side trying to cut it. They did everything imaginable to break Jackie, but Jackie would not break. Quite frankly, guys, some of those other Negro leaguers who had been so acclimated to segregation, man, they couldn't have handled it. Had you thrown a black cat on the field when Willie Wells walked out on the field, his natural instinct would have been pick that black cat up, throw it right back where it came from. But then the (laughs) naysayers would have said, see, I told you all they couldn't Mm. handle it. Mm. But if Jackie Mm. can't play, they would have said the exact same thing. See, I told you they weren't good enough to play in this league. Mm. So it was challenging to identify the right guy because failure is not an option on either side of the equation. If you can't take the abuse, the experiment is over. If he can't play, the experiment is over. Yeah, that's a lot of pressure, man. That's an incredible story and perspective and way to put it. Uh, you know, just thinking about how it had to be the right blend of both. Um, Curtis, I, I, I want to ask you about the museum specifically, because I think you took, if I remember right, you took a team trip with your Toronto teammates in 2018. What was that experience like to to, have, to experience that trip with your entire team and just some of the, maybe some of the reactions some of the, uh, you know, the things that people learned that they didn't know about or just seeing the way your teammates took in the experience. A combination of things happened on that trip. We're, we're going in there as the Toronto Blue Jays. We had a four-game set, and I had been hyping up for everybody to come in about two weeks prior. Contacted Bob, said, hey, can you lead the tour for us? Because, again, you got to get Bob to lead the tour. <laughs> yeah. The museum is great, but talk about going from an A to an A+. plus. That's what Bob's able to do. Yeah. So, Bring the Toronto Blue Jays in there in 2018, and it was a great group of individuals from the entire organization. Black players, Latin players, white players, and the first female athletic trainer in Nikki Huffman for the Toronto Blue Jays. And all that embodied what the Negro League stood for. The Negro Leagues, of course, had black players, but they also had Latin players. They had female players. And Bob, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't white players also play in the Negro Leagues? And the I asked that because so many people go, oh, this was just a Black-only league. And not only did it have all these people, but people forget that the major leagues not only was only white, but no one else could get in there. So, you know, if you can let everybody know, were there white players, were there women, were all this stuff? I, you know, I just feel like that connection is even greater to, to all these stories that we have. Yeah, no, man. And that was an amazing day. And, you know, not only did Curtis bring the Blue Jays, but he also brought teammates from the New York Mets. When they came to town, David Wright and a group of guys. And so, 
you know, those trips are already special. There's a wonderful piece that's on MLB.com today written by John Morosi that talks about how the Negro Leagues made the game global because it would be the Negro Leagues that would actually take baseball into Canada. They were oftentimes the first Americans to play in many Spanish-speaking countries. It was a team of Negro Leaguers that introduced professional baseball guys to the Japanese going all the way back to 1927. This is about seven years before Babe Ruth and his All-Stars go to Japan. Now, they've been credited with having taken professional baseball to the Japanese, but it's not true. It was a team called the Philadelphia Royal Giants who would go to Japan in 1927, play a 24-game exhibition series. They go 23-0-1 on the tour. The tour was so successful that several years later, Ruth and his All-Stars would get invited over. And Curtis, I always share that with my visitors because as you all know, when we look at the game today in its global capacity, there are so many ethnicities that make up a major league roster on any given day. Well, at the heart of it, it was the Negro League. They didn't care what color you were. All they cared was can you play? And so, yes, they opened their doors up for white players. There were a handful of white players who played. There were women, as you talked about, three pioneering women, Tony Stone, Mamie Peanut Johnson, and Connie Morgan. You know, these were pioneers. And, and to me, guys, that's why the Negro Leagues is so incredibly special. Here's a league born out of segregation that becomes the driving force for social change in our country. A league born out of exclusion would become this nation's most inclusive entity. They didn't care what color you were, and they didn't care what gender you were. Can you play? Do you have something to offer? And that's why I say that I think the story of the Negro Leagues embodies the American spirit, unlike any other story in the annals of American history. It's everything that this country prides itself on being. Uh-huh. And, and she's not where she's supposed to be. America is the greatest country in the world. But that doesn't mean that she can't get better. And, and it's our job, just as each of us every single day are trying to be better as human beings, we have to challenge this nation to be better as well. And, and I think the Negro Leagues is just a glowing example of those who have helped make the country better. We still got work to do. Well, Bob, you touched on that. And Cece, you know, you won a championship with the, the, the New York Yankees. I was over there with you and we didn't win it. But I always say that to people too, like the New York Yankees is arguably the most successful sports team of all time. Even though you won a championship in 09, if we struggled out there, the fans let us know. Like, hey, I know you guys are good. Possibly the best franchise of all time, but you guys need to keep getting better. You guys need to keep winning. Like, if they lose this year, what's going to happen? They're going to be booing everybody off the field if they were allowed in the stadium, <laughs> right? But like you said, Bob, and that's one thing I try to mention to people. America is one of the best places in the world, but it doesn't mean it can't get better. Just like the Yankees yeah. can't get better. Just like, you know, who was, you know all that different stuff. Like, if we're going to go ahead and hold the Yankees accountable, why can't you hold another team accountable? Why can't you hold the country accountable and hope for more? You know, if you are... 
on the honor roll, you want to keep doing well. You want to get that scholarship. If you got a job, you want to get a raise. If you want to own one company, you want to own two companies. You don't just settle where you are. And we shouldn't settle where America is right now. We should hope that it gets better and better and keeps yeah. getting better. That's a great We have point. to keep pushing. We have to keep pushing. You know, that's one of the best analogies I've heard, Curtis, uh, about, yeah, I, I mean, that's a great analogy. Think about it like your sports team and, and what you yeah. what you demand of it while you love it, right? Like, wh- <laughs> why, why, wh- why does it have to be any different? I mean, what do you guys think about that, though? Like, you know, we're obviously, uh, we're in this time in American history, right, where there is you know, a, a swell of, of social change or awareness or racial reckoning that is happening amongst companies, people, communities, families, whatever it might be. You know, does there, does it feel like, I mean, Bob, you just talked about how significant a role the Negro Leagues played in, in unifying us, right? Or, or in, or in, you know, widening our scope and, and broadening our minds and our hearts. I mean, is there a significance that, hey, we're having, you know, this hundredth year celebration at this particular moment in American history, does the intersection feel particularly significant? Oh, it absolutely does. And and honestly, Ryan, if I am going to take solace from anything that has occurred during this very tumultuous time as the country has gone through this social upheaval, it would be the fact that so many people have turned to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum for thought leadership. And that's with the understanding that this museum is a social justice museum. It is a civil rights museum. It is just seen through the lens of baseball. But more importantly, it is triumph over that adversity. And and for me, it's this kind of parallel mindset. I want you to understand these downtrodden things that have happened to people who look like me as we've tried to navigate our way to equality in what was supposed to be the land of the free. But I don't want that to be the only image that you have of me. Yeah, I don't want it to be the, you know, just you seeing me sprayed with water hoses and the dogs released on me and the police brutality that has sadly manifested itself and and continued to this very day. If you are to fully understand the black experience in this country, you need to also know my success story because that's where the commonality comes. Most other folks can't relate to being sprayed by water hoses. You know, they don't relate to that. But you need to know my success stories. And the Negro Leagues are one of those great African-American success stories. That's what we talk about is that triumph over that adversity. It's that refusal to accept that you're unfit to do anything. So I'll show you. You won't let me play with you. I create my own. And so a hundred years of celebrating the richness of the Negro Leagues and the profoundness of this league and what it represents both on and off the field, I don't know if it could have come at a better time. And, and CC and Curtis, that's why I think to tip your cap to the Negro League campaign was so wildly successful. We needed something that we could all rally around. And it was cross-generational. It crossed all ethnic lines. And for me, it, it makes me proud that the winning spirit of the Negro Leagues 
could be part of the healing process in this country. And something as simple as tipping your cap. And of course, I don't have to tell you guys, you all know that is the ultimate show of respect in our sport. What that could mean to so many people as we try to relate how important the Negro Leagues were on and off the field. Now, Bob hit it right on the head. I mean, you know, people need to understand our success stories. And the Negro Leagues was a success. I was talking to one of my good friends, Brian, you know, um, Samir. And he was saying, he was like, man, I just thought the Negro Leagues was like, they just played in back. It was like backyard baseball. I'm like, no, bro. Like, it was (laughs) a widely successful league that they ran. Like, the first night games became, you know, it was from the Negro Leagues. Like, people need to hear these stories. And, And what we're trying to do with the Players Alliance, trying to make some change in the game. Um, you know, people need to relate to these stories and know these stories about the Negro Leagues and it'll help them, you know, I mean, even if kids are hearing this, you know, it may get them into the sport to know that, you know, this is long lineage of history of us playing this game. And it's not just an MLB. We actually had our own league. So, um, you know, this being the 100th year of the Negro Leagues, um, us developing the Players Alliance this year, it just feel like everything is just lining up for us to tell more of these stories, get more people through Kansas City, you know, get some tournaments out to get everything going that we've, that we've been talking about, you know, collectively for so many years. It just seemed like this is the perfect time right now. And there's so many things that work correctly and the exact way you wanted to see it work with the Negro leagues, which started a hundred years ago today, (laughs) but now we're a hundred years removed and we still are trying to figure certain things out, whether it's gender equality, racial equality, all these different things that somehow they got it right a hundred years ago and we still can't seem to figure things out, especially on the major league scene and and in life and all these different things. And like CC said, with the Players Alliance, those are some of the things that we're trying to continue to bring to light. You know, right now we just had the first female coach with the uh, San Francisco Giants, I think. Giants, yeah. Giants. We, we, we have Derek Jeter as a black owner, and he's still only a main minority owner. You know, we don't even have a black majority owner. We only have two black GMs. You know, there's different things. And even this past year in this draft, there were only 13 black players selected in the draft. 13. You know, out of five rounds in the draft, there were only 13 black players. And you'll see certain things. People say, oh, well, you know, maybe they weren't good enough. You have to argue and say there's a lot of kids out there that are playing that have opportunities to get opportunities to, to play and things like that. There has to be more than 13 good black players throughout the United <laughs> States, Puerto Rico, and Canada to have an opportunity to get drafted because those are the guys that are eligible. Absolutely, Curtis. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm wondering from a, from a baseball standpoint, Bob, stylistically, when you yes. look at the you look at the game today, in what ways can you see the influence of the Negro Leagues playing out on the field today? You know, sadly, Ryan, I don't see the influence anymore. You know, mm. in some ways, because I think of, you know, the sabermetrics and all the analytics that go into our game, our game has reverted back a little bit to what Major League Baseball looked like before Jackie came over. You know, the Negro Leagues, just they just played the game differently. The pace of the game was fast. It was aggressive. It was daring. Major League Baseball was essentially a base-to-base kind of game. So a guy got on base, you moved him over to second, and then the big hitters drove him in. But in the Negro Leagues, they dropped that bunt. They were still second. 
they still third. And man, if you weren't too smart, they were still at home. And, and so they had guys who could hit the ball out the ballpark, but they're going to have six, seven guys who could steal your 30, 40 bases a year. And, and so, you know, I know that the analytics don't want you to take the bat out of the big hitter's hand. And, and our game has essentially become a home run strikeout game. You don't see the ball hitting the gap and the guys doing those kinds of things. And, and I'm not saying anything wrong with that. I just prefer the faster pace of the game. And, and for me, and, and Curtis, I'm sorry to bring this up, but for me, the 2015 Kansas City Royals played the game <laughs> like they played it in the Negro <laughs> You know, they, they played it like they played it in the Negro Leagues. I was doing one of these again with, with our fine GM, Dave Moore, Ryan. Mm. And we were talking about that game in 15 against the Blue Jays to decide that, that championship series when Lorenzo Kane scores from first base on a single. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he scores from first on a single. That's Negro Leagues baseball. <laughs> and, and, and I can tell you now, it's not a whole lot that's more exciting to see a play like that. And, and when he makes that pop-up slide at home plate, the K is going crazy and the joy that he had. And, and then this permeated throughout the dugout. Now you go back to 14 and, and, and Ned Yost finally started turning them loose and letting them run. And, and that started to permeate to the point that Billy Butler was <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know that's what I mean. That is exciting. You know, it keeps you on the edge of the seat. And, and as you both know, when everybody in the ballpark knows that a guy is going to try and steal a pitch, you know everybody knows. Now you don't know where pitch is going on, but you can feel the excitement growing. You know, and, and to me, that's what the Negro League, that they brought that level of athleticism, but you also got to have it. You got to have the horses to play that way. You know, everybody's not equipped to play that way. You know, you got finely tuned athletes. You know, they live in the gym. They, they live in the gym. They work out all the time. But man, I, you know, you don't see that kind of speed and athleticism that was commonplace in the Negro League. And, and, and to me, that's what you, you miss. I, I just think if, if the game is more exciting, I don't care how long I have to sit there. You give me something I want to see, I'll sit there all day and watch it. You know, nobody complains how long the NFL is, you know, and, and so I'm not worried about us speeding up the game with a clock. I just want to see us speed up the game with the way we play the game. But yeah. I'm old school. Yeah, I'm just old school. I know it. And, and, and as a as a pitcher and as a fan, I feel like we lost that in like the eighties and nineties. Like th- those Cardinals teams in the mid eighties, yeah. th- those were like yeah. Negro League. They was that was a track meet, you know what I mean? And they was going, they was running, and 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 for me, like the uh, like I can think I think of a team that that I faced in my career would would have been Tampa when they had Carl Crawford, they had BJ Upton, they had Rocco Baldelli, one two three. And they could all take you deep, and they could all steal second and third, you know, if you walk them. So, you know, it ain't too many teams built like that anymore with that type of athleticism. You know, it's just mm-hmm. it's just not in our game anymore. I know they talk about the analytics side of the game. I've always talked about the stolen bases. I wasn't a stolen base threat, but I could steal bases. Mm-hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong and let people know, if you're pitching, 
If I'm at mm. first versus being at second or being at third, does that do anything to your mindset as a pitcher? Yeah, so like if, so this is, okay, so when I used to face Tampa, and if I walk Carl, and he's at first, and I'm, I got a slide step, and I'm looking at him, and I'm, then I'm going to leave something over the plate, BJ's going to hit a double. Then it's, then it's, you know, it's a runner on second, Carl then scored, now I got Rocco Bedelli up there. Now, BJ might still third, I'm looking at him, I hang something to Rocco, now it's three to nothing, <laughs> and I ain't got no outs, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> it's three to nothing, I ain't got no outs, just because they all athletic, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I would much rather face the teams that I faced later in my career than the ones that ran earlier, 1,000%, way more comfortable on the mound when I know you're going station to station. Because they talk about the analytics, and I'm all for analytics that are help, but there's no way to analytically quantify your brain and your heart when that dude is stealing second and stealing third. Now, yeah. they can say that, hey, if he runs into an out, we just pull the run off the board. But if he makes it safely, you're switching your pitches. You know, you're sidestepping. You're doing all these different things that's making my job as a hitter a little bit easier. Like you said, you may leave something up in the zone that I can take advantage of. And think about how many guys now that can't hold runners. Or literally can't throw to first base. I love John Lester. John Lester's, I love John Lester. He cannot pick over. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, I love, Dylan Batanz is my little brother. He can't pick over to first base. Because, but it don't matter because guys ain't running. You know what I'm saying? Like, it don't even matter. Nope. Yeah. But, you know, if Cool Papa Bell took a walk, man, that's a double. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that was equivalent to a double. And, and and I think that's the thing. That's what, you know, that's as, as Gerard Dyson would say when he was with Gerard, that's what's being new. You know, yeah. it puts pressure on you. It puts <laughs> Root Foster's teams could score a run and the ball never left the infield. You know, it never left the infield. Uh, you know, guy got to walk, they go bun him over. You know, he could steal another base and, and, and hit one to the right side and get that run in. And that's why they were beating so many of the major league teams because nobody really plays that way. It puts so much mm. pressure on the defense to be perfect all the time. You cannot make a mistake, you know, and, and, and it's fun to watch. It really is. I'm, I'm going to tell you, as, as a starter, no worse feeling than giving up a run and you felt like nothing happened. There you go. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A walk, two stolen bases, and a ground ball, and it's one and nothing. I'm like, yo, what just happened? Like, I'm pitching good, but I'm losing already. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but you know what? I mean, Cur Curtis, you make such a good point, though. Like, because I'm a guy, I, I you know, I, I buy into and, and love the way analytics can help you see things that maybe otherwise, like, you don't get a grasp of. But... You are right when you rely solely on them and you forget, well, how do I quantify the pitcher on the mound who's all of a sudden distracted? Or like you just brought up, Bob, the defense that all of a sudden feels like it has to be perfect. Like, how, how am I quantifying that? Is there really a metric to tell me what happens or how, how it affects a pitcher's brain or like you said, their heart, how, how it's beaten when all of a sudden you have to pay attention to, you know, Joey Gathright on first base or whoever it might be? Yeah. I mean, in 2015, I know, Bob, I mean, we lost to the Kansas City Royals and the New York Mets, but we made it to the World Series doing the exact same thing the Royals yep. did. When we played the Cubs, no one had seen us run all year long. And we got on the Cubs and we ran on Lester. We mm -hmm. ran on Arietta. We ran. Everybody's looking around going, what are they doing? I remember Daniel Murphy at first base <laughs> telling me, he goes, 
I said, all right. I took off and went to third. I, said, I, didn't know. <laughs> I get back in the dugout. He goes, I didn't know you were going to do it. I was like, you told me to go. Man, I went to the And we beat them, you know, quick. And, they, and yeah. I remember that offseason, Kevin Long said he got a chance to talk with some of the Cubs. They said, was your plan to run against us? They said, yep. And that was <laughs> it. <laughs> you know, we went out there and run. The hit was going to take care of itself. But all that running put pressure on them and made them think about stuff they had never thought about. And sure enough, we ended up sweeping them. Yep. You yeah. lead pitches up, man. I'm telling you, when you get fast runners on, you you just you just lead pitches up just because you're you're trying to be quicker to the plate to give the catcher a chance to throw somebody out. Bob, I feel like uh, you know, before we kind of uh, tie everything together, I-, I feel like we need to give you a chance to tell a Josh Gibson story or two because you mentioned it before. <laughs> And, you know, I, I, I know as, as sad as it is and as wrong as it is, I know that there are going to be people listening to this podcast who don't know anything about Josh Gibson. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and, and, and you know, and I don't, I don't want them to feel like, you know, feel like they, they all of a sudden should be excoriated for that. But I'm sure they're excited for the opportunity to learn more about how talented this man was and just what a ridiculous player he was. You mentioned the story about, hey, better than Mays or, or Aaron. But, uh, you know, yeah. I, I wonder if you can give, a, you know, a little more color or, or another story as to just what yeah. a dynamic well, player he was. He, he was. He was electric as a catcher. You know, if there's any such thing as a 5-2 catcher, <laughs> it was Josh Gibson. You know, guys, if you want to think physically, his physique, think Bo Jackson as a catcher. That's Josh Gibson. And the greatest combination of power and average that I think this sport has ever seen. Because mm. lost in the power, and, and the power was almost mythical-like. But as I tell people, it was very real. But lost in the power was the fact that Josh Gibson wasn't a good hitter. He was a great hitter, lifetime batting average of 354, and in head-to-head competition against major leaguers in countless exhibition games, hit over 420. Mm. And he was doing this as a catcher, and, and he was a great catcher. So, CC, he was going to call a great game. He had complete control of his pitching staff, and he was a good running catcher. So he's going to steal you 20, 25 bases or more to go with that big bat of his. And guys, when I say big bat, I mean big bat. <laughs> 40 ounce, 41 inches, man. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and Curtis, he ain't choking up on it. He's got it, <laughs> he's got it gripped down below the knob, man. And, and, and Buck O'Neill would describe him in this matter, that he had the eyes of Ted Williams and the power of Babe Ruth rolled into one dynamic package. You know, his outs, as we say in the game, were loud outs because he didn't <laughs> strike out a lot. So the third baseman and the shortstop, CC, they damn near in left field with this <laughs> up there, man. You ain't creeping in on Josh because you could get killed. And so the guy, kid for the, the homestead grade, they're playing and Gibson's at the plate and the kid does try to steal second base 
and he gets thrown out to end the game. And, and Josh, he was a soft-spoken giant of a man, said, what were you doing? He said, I was trying to get in the scoring position. He said, son, I'm in scoring position when I come to the plate. <laughs> <laughs> that is tremendous and an outstanding way to describe what a great talent he was. You know, I, I, I think maybe this is something good to just kind of wrap up the conversation as we celebrate the 100 years of the Negro Leagues and we see all the players, managers, coaches, umpires who are going to be wearing the, the centennial patch uh, on their uniforms uh, for, for these games on this Sunday. Um, it, it, Curtis, let's start with you. If there is one thing that you know is really important for you, for people to understand about the Negro Leagues, what would it be? It was the place that if you can play, you can play. And that's how everything should be. If you have the ability to do it, you should have the opportunity to do it. How about you, C? For me, it was just, I just want people to know how big of a booming business it was, you know, and, and it wasn't <laughs> just backyard baseball. You know, we, you know, we were able to play on the same level, um, the same talent. And, you know, when we got the opportunity, um, you know, we kicked in the door. So, you know, I just want pe more people to know about, you know, the actual league itself, you know, and, and get to the museum and, and get a chance to really learn that history. How about you, Bob? Well, for me, man, it's just the fact that we want people to understand those who help make our country better. And, and that's exactly what the Negro Leagues did. And the pride, the passion, the perseverance, the demonstration, uh, the determination, the courage that they demonstrated in the face of adversity it not only changed our game, it changed our country for the better. And, and they should be remembered. They should be celebrated. And it takes me again back to something that Buck O'Neill would oftentimes say. You know, most of the time in our country, we celebrate the people who crossed over the bridge. At the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, we celebrate the people who built the bridge. And it's rare that the bridge builders ever get celebrated. But that's what we're doing. And that's what will take place as we have this epic celebration, 100 years of the Negro Leagues. We're literally tipping our cap to those who built the bridge so that CeCe Sabathia could cross over, so that Curtis Granderson could cross over, so that countless others could pursue their dream of playing in the major leagues. It does not happen without those courageous individuals who call the Negro Leagues home. Uh, I mean, absolutely beautifully put, Bob. I, I, I just, I also want to give you a chance, Bob, to let people know if they want to help out with the Negro League Museum, if they want to contribute, how do they go about doing that? They obviously need to take a trip to Kansas City and see the museum yeah. because it is an unbelievable experience. And of course, request the tour from Bob. You know, you may have to pay for the <laughs> VIP treatment, but you should do that because it's amazing. But but Bob, for people who want to support the museum and, and, and the Negro Leagues, how do they go about doing that? Yeah, please visit our website at www.nlbm.com. There's places uh, where you can obviously make a donation in support of the museum. There are membership opportunities. And, and of course, there's our incredible gift shop. The, the gear that you and I and, uh, are sporting now, created by and in, in conjunction with CC and the Players Association, is coming back to support the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Mm. You can get this cool gear at rootsoffight.com. And so there are any number of ways to support. And if you can't do any of those other things, 
visit the Negro Leagues Museum. Bring your family to experience the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Uh, it is such an incredible and special place. Uh, and so we do encourage folks to join our team so that we make sure that the legacy of the Negro League plays on forever. Well said, Bob. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's always amazing to talk to you. Curtis, it's always great to talk to you. And and see, I think, uh, I know our audience is going to get such a kick out of this, man, and, and learn about the Negro Leagues. And I know how special uh, and important this day is celebrating. So awesome that uh, you guys were willing to come on and, and do this roundtable because this was great. Yeah, this is awesome. Oh, I appreciate man. you guys. Appreciate you guys coming on. Look, I found this picture of uh, that satchel when he was playing for uh, Miami. Miami <laughs> oh, That's, yeah. He's supposed to be 51 years old right there. Yeah. <laughs> they, they play a game at the Orange Bowl. They play a game at the Orange Bowl, and, and they fly the old man in by helicopter. They land, <laughs> they <laughs> and, and, and they play before the largest minor league crowd uh, it was a record crowd of over 51,000 wow. inside the Orange Bowl to see the old man pitch mm. and, and he was incredible he wins the game but I can tell you that if you were talking to Satchel he would be more excited about the three runs that he drove in spoken like That's a true great. pitcher what a right. great story to end it Bob thank you so much Curtis thank you so much guys thank you anytime man thank you guys wow I mean I could listen to those stories all day man it's absolutely fantastic stuff now you see why I go to the museum. Go to the museum every time I'm in Kansas City. It's like part of my routine. I have to stop by there every time I'm in. I, dude, I get it, man. I get it, and and I will be once again. And you know what? Next year when we could travel again, we will do a special R2C2 blowout at the museum without question. Yeah, for sure. Maybe even get Jimmy, get Ryan, like get a bunch of guys and and yeah. just do like a big round table. I think it'll be a lot of fun. You know, that would be great, man. That would be great. And you know, he mentioned. Um, a couple different things, obviously going to the Negro League Museum website, but also the Roots of Fight gear, which you collaborated yeah. on, designed, and uh, we're both wearing right now. The gear is amazing. See, and people just, they go to rootsoffight.com and they can get it, right? Yeah, rootsoffight.com. is more stuff coming out. We got a different color short coming out, shorts coming out. This Jackie Robinson tee in white with the five on the back. Um, we got a tank top coming out. So... Um, it's about to be fall. They got the hoodie. So uh, mm. everybody get your gear up, man. It's, uh, you know, it's, Roots of Fight is a, is a dope uh, brand. And, you know, obviously, you know, I thank them for partnering with me and Bob and the Player Association and, you know, getting his gear out for the anniversary of the, of the Negro Leagues. And see, I did just want to also give you a chance. You talked about the Players Alliance a couple of times, as did Curtis. For people who are, you know, just getting acclimated to what the Players Alliance is, why don't you fill them in? Yeah, Players Alliance. We we basically formed uh, about a month ago. Um, it's you know all the, the the guys in the league, uh, current and former players, and we basically started our own organization. Um, so five hundred one c three, and we're going to try to help uh, get more black kids, just more color in baseball, top to bottom. You know, grassroots all the way up. You know, to the top. So um, that's our mission, and and uh, you know, hopefully we can. Um, you know, start announcing some of the cool things that we got planned here soon. 
Awesome. Well, we look forward to hearing about that. Want to remind our audience, new episodes every Thursday, but we're releasing multiple times a week now. You know, this is our first bonus one, but it's going to happen a little more often. So make sure you're subscribed to the new feed for R2C2. Get it on Spotify, um, you know, wherever you get your podcasts, you can, but you might as well go to Spotify now because eventually you're just going to need to be there. So they don't, they don't need to wait and re- rate and review on this one. They, you know what? They can rate and review if they want, but really we just need them subscribing to the feed. So they're getting the episodes, you know, that's what we really need them doing because, you know, I, I, I know, um, you know, I know we, we've been a little bit nomadic in our existence thus far, but we got it. <laughs> we got a big home now, so they need to follow us uh, on over here and, and, For sure. uh, for, to uh, Spotify and The Ringer. But um, we'll have uh, another new episode Thursday morning um, and see uh, really great stuff, man. I'm looking forward to this celebration of the Negro Leagues today. Yeah, no, I'm super excited. Um, you know, obviously I'm excited for the pot. The pot. I mean, people are going to be excited about this. And, um, you know, to, just the the people wearing the patch today, you know, yeah. for the game. Um, you know, I, I'm excited to, to see that out on the field. So, Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. So hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Enjoy this celebration throughout baseball today, and we will talk to you Thursday. Peace, everybody. Peace.